We've traveled through in Genesis through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the largest section of the book we've mentioned over the past few teachings is devoted to this man called Joseph. As a matter of fact, he has 25% of the entire book is devoted to his story. And so the last three teachings, we talked about how he was the example, and he's the one who taught us to ask What would somebody in my situation do facing the same thing that I'm facing? What would that person do if they were absolutely convinced that God was with them? And we said, do that. And so we've we've considered that. We went through it that way. But today, I want to go through the same story, but we're going to go through it from a a very different angle. I think you're going to find this absolutely fascinating. But you need to know, I was sort of hesitant to teach this because I really like the practical application. And uh, there's not a lot of practical application in this. This comes under the heading or the category of just stuff you just got to know. I think you're going to find it absolutely fascinating, but, uh, but just so you know that on, on the, the front end. Now, the reason I think we need to know stuff like this, if you're like me, I grew up in the church, loved the Lord, and then I went to college. And... Uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you, you have these professors and the voices that tell you, you know, the Bible was just written by men. It's not really relevant. You know, the stories are all just fables. Is that, and how many of you have ever heard anything sort of, sort of like that? Well, what I've found through the years, and I hope you do too, the more you study the Bible, the more you realize that it really is the word of God, the word of God. And as one of my mentors says, he says it like this, hopefully I can say it, uh, he, he says, uh, the more you study it, you find that the Bible is an integrated messaging system whose origins are beyond the time and space domain. And uh, it's true, it's true. And uh, so I'm going to look at that today. And uh, so ho- hopefully you find this as fascinating as, as I do. If not, oh well. But I want to begin on your outline today with a verse from Hosea. Now, if you've been around Calvary for some time, you're familiar with this verse. God is speaking in Hosea, and he says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and I've used similitudes. You want to underline the word similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now, you and I, we read that, and we go, okay, we get the prophets. You know, you have the Old Testament prophets, you get that. And visions, we get that because, you know, you go through Ezekiel and Isaiah, and you get all these visions. And so God spoke through that. But then he says he has also used similitudes. Now, you go, what is a similitude? Well, a similitude is a word picture. The idea is you're reading a story in the Bible, and the story is true. It actually happened. But you realize as you're reading through it that it's actually a picture of something else, something greater. Today, we're going to look at a similitude. So it was about 150 years before Jesus was born, and the Old Testament scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, we would say uh, Hebrew scripture scholars, they were studying, and as they went through, they came to the story of Joseph, and they began to ponder, why Joseph? And they began to ask themselves, could this Joseph be a picture of, of something greater? Could he be a picture of the Messiah? We would say the Christ. More specifically, we would say Jesus. Could he be a picture of Jesus? Now, they didn't know Jesus. We do, so we're, we're after that, so just so you, you know that. 
And, and they made some observations. And one of the observations that they made as they looked at the Old Testament was that there are only two people in the Old Testament who are prominent, that, that there's nothing bad said about them. One of them is Daniel. Uh, nothing ba- bad is ever said about Daniel the prophet. And then you have Joseph. Nothing in the Bible is ever spoken negative about Joseph. And then they notice that you have the story of Joseph and the story takes up 25% of the book of Genesis. That, that's a big chunk of, of, of Genesis. And uh, it, it's interesting because when you go through the Bible, you, you ask, when, when God is showing what's important, you look at the amount of real estate that God gives to, to a particular story. So, um, so for instance, for instance, there on your outline, um, we talk about the creation, and that's a big deal in our day, the creation. And, uh, and, and yet when it talks about the universe, God just says there on the outline, he made the stars also. One verse, he made the stars also. And, and so, but God takes 25% of the book to talk about Joseph. It's as if God is saying, yeah, 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 I, I made the universe, but let's talk about Joseph. And so he gives 25% of the book. So it, apparently it's important to, to the Lord. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you have the story, the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is raised from the dead. And there, there are two people and they're, they're walking on the way to this, this place called Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them. They, they don't recognize him. And he begins a conversation with them. And it's interesting what he says or what's said there. There on your outline, it says, and beginning with Moses, you want to underline Moses, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself, himself. You want to underline that? Uh, in all the scriptures. Now that's interesting because it says he began with Moses. Well, well, what did Moses write? Well, Moses wrote the book of Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy. So when he begins to explain the things concerning himself, he began with the book of Genesis. So we say, well, where is Jesus found in the book of Genesis? Well, we're going to look at that today. Another verse there in your outline in Psalms, it says, the volume of the book is written of me. The idea is that the entire Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, is all written about one person. It all points to Jesus, all points to Jesus. So you want to keep that in mind as we go. So they, they looked at the story of Joseph, and, and they made a couple of observations. And first of all, Joseph is Jacob's son. Now, you know that Jacob's name would be changed to Israel. And Israel's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. You, you, you know this, right? We've talked about this. So, but there in your outline, Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. But there is no tribe of Joseph. There's no tribe of Joseph, although he's one of Jacob's sons. So he's not, he's there, but he's not really part. He doesn't become one of the 12 tribes. He doesn't become a patriarch. And yet the largest section of Genesis is devoted to his story. So why give the largest part of the book of Genesis to someone who's not a patriarch, doesn't become a tribe of Israel, unless it's a picture of something greater, something in the future. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share some thoughts as we travel through this, and then I'll I'll let you decide to see if there's something really to this. Now, you want to you want to keep in mind that this is a picture of Jesus, but it's not the actual story. It's a picture, but not the story. 
And so uh, you see if uh, this makes sense to you as we go. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 37 of Genesis. I'm going to read the first two verses. And it says, now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph was, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So like another son, 2,000 years in the future from this event, we're going to find, you want to write this down, uh, this son is going to exist in harmony with his father, exist in harmony with his father. Now, some would suggest that Joseph is being, you know, acting as like a tattletale in this, but as a picture of Jesus, he's not being immature, but like another son, Jesus, Joseph will, and I want you to write this down, be more concerned about pleasing his father than others. His main concern is pleasing his father. Just like Jesus would say 2,000 years in the future, for I always do those things that please him. He's going to be more concerned about his father's business. Joseph desires, Joseph desires to please his father. And uh, pleasing his father is going to cause some other people to be greatly displeased. So the brothers aren't caring for the flock. Well, verse 3, it says, Now Israel, uh, which is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. So the first thing we notice is that Joseph is going to be a favored son, but when it says a very colored tunic, when you look at the actual Hebrew word, the word there in your outline just means by implication, a long and sleeved tunic. Uh, I know we all grew up with the story of the coat of many colors, but, but what actually took place is when Jerome, early on in church history, translated the Bible into Latin from the Hebrew, uh, when he used the word there, and when it was translated from the Latin into English, somehow it became very colored. Or, or, and so, but the actual word means long sleeve. And, and that hopefully that doesn't blow your theology, but I just want you to know that. But the brothers will see that the father gives to Joseph a long sleeve coat. Now, in that day, that would imply leadership because. Um, if you had a long sleeve coat and you're out in the field, you're not going to be the one doing the work. You'd be more like the foreman. So this would be the father's way of saying that Joseph is going to be the one in charge. He receives the coat that you wouldn't do work in, long sleeves. So verse four, it goes on. So his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. So they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So like another son, 2,000 years in the future, uh, we're going to find that he will be hated by his brothers. You want to write that down. It, it, would, it would say in John's gospel, it says, he came to his own and his own received him not. So Joseph receives dreams. We'd say a message that comes from God. And I'm going to kind of condense this, verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Then you go down to verse eight, and it says, then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Uh, the dreams implied that ultimately Joseph would be the ruler over them. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph, like another brother or another son, 2,000 years in the future, you want to write down, will speak the truth and the message is rejected. So there in your outline, Jesus would say, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Joseph knew that the message was from God and he knew that his message would be offensive to his brothers. Just like another son 2,000 years in the future would say there in your outline, Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, you know that he is going to be what we might call the chief cornerstone before the story is over next week. So we pick it up in verse 12. Then, uh, and and very, very interesting, verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture, which means that Joseph didn't go to pasture. His brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem, Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. I will send them. I will send you to them. I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Came to the valley of Hebron, to the, uh, to the, and he came to Shechem. So when the story begins, Joseph is with the father. He's not with the brothers. They're in Shechem and they are pasturing the flock. In order for Joseph to go to be where the brothers are, he will have to leave the valley of Hebron. Hebron there on your outline just means fellowship. It comes from the Bible exposition commentary. But then he's going to go to Shechem. Shechem from Strong's Concordance just means the place of burdens or place of the burden. When you actually look at the expanded um, um, definition of that, it means the burden as being carried from between the shoulders. It's as if somebody has the burden on their shoulders and they're carrying that. So Joseph will have to go from the place of fellowship with the father to the place of the burdens. Like another son, you want to write this down, he'll have to leave the place of fellowship with the father to go to the place of the burden, the place of the burden, which is where the brothers are. So the father sends Joseph on a mission. So verse 15, it tells us about the mission. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, and I want you to underline this, I am looking for my brothers. I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. So the mission there, and I put that there on your outline, he says, I am looking for my brothers, which is going to be just like another son 2,000 years in the future who would say, for the son of man, there in your outline, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, very interesting as this son, Joseph, goes on the mission to the place of the burden to seek and save or to find his brothers, 
what we find is that there's going to be a plot against him. So we pick that up in verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him, underline that, and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, a wild beast has devoured him. Let us see what will become of his dreams. So this plot against this brother uh, is going to kill him, just like another son 2,000 years in the future, while he's still a long way off, very early in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot how they might kill Jesus, just like they wanted to kill Joseph. But as this plot is unfolding to kill him, there's going to be a rescue attempt to save his life. So verse 21, it says, but Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he, and I've underlined this part, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So while this plot is taking place, one will stand up and will do his best to rescue Joseph, just like there will be one who will try to rescue another son 2,000 years in the future. There in your outline, it says, and Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. So Pilate tried to get Jesus released. He tried to rescue him from their hands, but they wanted to kill him. So verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, and I've underlined that, the very colored tunic that was on him. We would say long sleeve. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit, the pit was empty without any water in it. So it's interesting, what they're going to do is they're going to strip him of his coat just like would happen to another son 2,000 years in the future, where it would say there in your outline, they divided his garments. And he will be thrown into a pit, just like another son, where it would say, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So you, there's this, the, the same thing is, is happening. Well, verse 25 they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, Gilead, and their camels, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, make sure you underline myrrh, on their way to bring them down to Egypt. So there, there's a lot going on in this, and things uh, really pick up at this point, but but uh, interesting, if you look up the word Gilead, they're coming from Gilead, and Easton's Bible Dictionary just says that Gilead just means the hill of testimony. Many people see this as a reference to the cross. And what's also interesting from the hill of testimony, 
they are bringing, and I want you to write this down, they brought spices for burial. Spices for burial. So from the hill of testimony, they're bringing spices that would be used in burial. Interesting, another son, uh, when he comes from the hill of testimony, if it's a reference to the cross, uh, they will bring burial spices there in your outline. In Luke's gospel, it says, they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared, but in John's gospel, it's a little bit more specific. Nicodemus comes and says, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Myrrh was the spice that you would use to prepare the body for death. So from the hill of testimony in Joseph, they're bringing the same spices, myrrh, which would be used for for preparing the body for death. Uh, Verse 26, Judah, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Now that's very interesting that Judah says, let's sell him. There on your outline. In the Old Testament from Hebrew, his name would be Judah. But in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, his name is not Judah. I put the definition there. Judas comes from the Hebrew origin, the name Judah. So in the New Testament, Judah's name would be Judas. So there in your outline in the New Testament from the Greek, the name is Judas, and you want to write that down. It's interesting that 2,000 years later, after Judah uh, says, let's sell him, another Judas would say, let's sell, let's sell another son. Well, verse 28, it says, then some Midianite traders passed by. At this time, Midianites are passing by. You want to underline the word Midian. Midianites are passing by. Very important. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, the Ishmaelites, for 20 shekels of silver. 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So what you find just like another son 2,000 years in the future, uh, they will sell this son for silver. Now, apparently not all the brothers were there because one of the brothers wanted to to rescue. But he would be sold for silver just like another son 2,000 years in the future. There on your outline, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. Judas gets 30 pieces of silver to sell Jesus. To which you say, 20 verses 30. So wait a minute there, Dano, what's going on? Well, you have 20, 2,000 years earlier, 20 pieces, and then 2,000 years later, it's 30 pieces. What is it? It's inflation. (laughs) Well, that's not completely true. That's not completely true. First of all, remember, this is a picture. It's not the actual story. And, and, and yet what we're told is that at that time, the actual price of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. So they would sell Joseph for 20 pieces, but then take him to Egypt where he would be sold for 
30 pieces of silver. So, um, and, and that's what we're told. And, 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 you know, I've read some things on that, but you know, that's the best answer I have. So he sold to the Ishmaelites. Now, while all this is happening, while all this is happening, there's a detail that God, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, you need to know this. You need to know this. So what's passing by? Well, verse 28, it says, then some Midianite traders passed by, passed by. It's very interesting. I put that on your outline. Midianite traders passed by, and it's at this time. It's at this time. Well, if you look up Midian from the Hitchcock's Bible name dictionary, Midian just means judgment, judgment. So we would say that it's at this time that judgment is passing by as, as this is taking place, which is going to be very good for those who receive, but it's going to be very bad for those who reject. But this is where that judgment passes by. Now, you will find later on in the chapter, and I'm not sure if I said this, but, but the Ishmaelites will actually be uh, with the Midianites. It says sells them to the Ishmaelites, but then the Midianites will be the ones later on. It, tell me if I said this in this service. The Ishmaelites came from Abraham's descendants through Hagar. The Midianites came from Abraham's descendants through, after Sarah passes, he marries Keturah, and uh, they come from Keturah. So uh, that, that they're, they're separate, but they're also together. So, well, judgment is passing by. Verse 31, it says, so they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So just like another son 2,000 years in the future, we're going to find that there's going to be a lie surrounding his death. 2,000 years in the future, it would be said when Jesus comes out of the grave, it says, when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So there was a lie surrounding his death. Well, as the story goes, you know that Joseph, when he comes up out of the pit, he's not going to be dead, but he's going to be alive. Just like another son, who 2,000 years later, when he comes up out of the pit, although there's a lie about his death, he's not going to be dead, but he's going to be alive. Do you find that interesting? So when I see things like this, it causes me to say, there's a whole lot more to the Bible than maybe what I was told, and, uh, and there, then the Bible is filled with things like this. If you found this interesting, then I want to encourage you to come back next week because next week will be absolutely mind-blowing as a picture of Jesus. With that, let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer, and we'll pick it up there next week. Father, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for their love for you, their love for your word, their love for the, 
the things of your spirit, just the love for the things of God. I pray, God, your blessing on each and every one who is here today and those who couldn't be here with us today. Lord, we're yours. We love you. We're grateful that we belong to you. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.